Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Main EMS Podcasts. Uh, my name is Matthew Scholl. I'm the Main EMS Medical Director, and with me today is Don Sheets, Education Coordinator for Main EMS. Hi, everybody. Unfortunately, Don is suffering from a small upper respiratory infection right now, so if he sounds especially deep and nasal, con- nasally congested, please forgive him. All right, so uh, to keep consistent with our format here, we're going to try to answer a couple frequently asked questions. Actually, some of these came directly from your questions about the protocol updates, and then we'll dive in quickly, a quick main EMS update, and then we're going to jump into do a discussion on seizure management today. So, Matt, one of our uh, first questions that came out of the uh, protocol updates is actually geared towards uh, a lot of our BLS providers and actually surrounds the management of anaphylactic patients, especially now that EMT is no longer required to call medical control for the administration of IM epinephrine 1 to 1,000 in these patients. They were looking for a little bit more education on that. So that's a great, great uh, question. We thank uh, the person who sent that in. Uh, a few things um, uh, strike me. One is that we recognized in the change of that protocol that we would, uh, it would be beneficial to have a little bit more definition around anaphylaxis and around who should receive um, epinephrine in the face of an anaphylactic event. We also recognized that while this was in the protocols before by taking it offline and not requiring online medical control, this might lead to some trepidation amongst some providers. We uh, have actually addressed this in an earlier podcast, the March 2013 podcast number two, specifically discussed uh, management of anaphylaxis. And while some of that podcast does touch on ALS-level care, a good amount of it does discuss epinephrine and BLS-level care. So I think one of the first options is to go back to that And then beyond that, if questions remain, please either refer them to your service level medical director or uh, you can send them to Don through either his email at mainems.gov or through the MEMSED site also allows you to send an email or a question. We can address it specifically in an upcoming podcast. Uh, That goes for all uh, all FAQs. If folks reading this are uh, left with questions or want to leave comments for us, please send them along to Don. He's agreed to catalog those for us and we're committed to getting to them and commenting on them in, in upcoming uh, podcasts. Another frequently asked question that comes into our office is referring to the automated chest compression devices like the Lucas 2 or the Autopulse, and if any of these are currently approved by Main EMS, and if they're not, why aren't they? Yeah, so that's another great question. We've been watching this, uh, the, the literature and the evidence on these devices um, uh, pretty closely, and uh, we've been looking at this for a period of time, actually, the MDPB has been following this uh, uh, very closely. Um, Let me just back up and say that um, we are interested in any devices or anything that really uh, adds to the outcomes and survival for any of our patients uh, and and affects morbidity and mortality in a positive way. Uh, One of the problems with the uh, mechanical chest uh, compressors is I, I believe we're still in the midst of learning more about these and learning whether or not they uh, do what they uh, what they purport to do, um, and in fact, just in November on um, November seventeenth of this year, uh, JAMA published the most recent. Um, uh, I believe this was a uh, um, a uh, manufacturer sponsored article called "Mechanical Chest Compressions and Simultaneous Defibrillation Versus Conventional Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation in Out of Hospital Cardiac Arrest," or what's also called the Link Randomization Trial. And essentially what these, these, these studiers did is they, they actually randomized uh, sufferers of cardiac arrest to receiving 
uh, therapy via the Lucas 2 device in this case or undergoing manual CPR according to national guidelines. So these are these are rescuers performing the best CPR possible uh, based on what we know as of 2010. So the 2010 guidelines, 30 to 2, dissynchronous until advanced airways, and then, uh, uh, sorry, synchronous until advanced airways, and then dissynchronous after advanced airways. And the interesting thing was that there wasn't any difference in survival. They chose an interesting paradigm. They looked, their primary outcome was four-hour survival, they found no um, no difference in survival, no st- statistically difference in survival at four hours, meaning that the the machine did pretty good, and so did the rescuers uh, do pretty good. Um, now, some would say that their hypothesis, or you know, I think we, we have to wonder what their hypothesis was going into this. Were, were they hypothesizing that the machine would do better than rescuers? The reality is we find in this study that there's, really no benefit. The machine doesn't give us a benefit over using a, uh, what we call manual CPR. And that actually, while that was, while their primary endpoint was at four hours, they found that there was really no statistical difference in survival beyond four hours, too. They looked at uh, one month, six months. They looked at hospital discharge, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there really wasn't a major uh, uh, benefit from utilizing the device that they were able to uh, find in the study. So, you know, this, this is one of many studies. There's a lot of different uh, stuff out there about these devices, and I think we're watching this very closely. We want to make sure that before we, as the uh, MDPB, approve a device, the device is actually going to do what it says it's going to do. And right now the literature is kind of split on what what these devices offer us. And I don't think the story's written yet, which means you might see the MDPB approve these in the future, although you might also see them not approve these in the future. It really depends on what we bear out in clinical practice and in in the evidence. If you have other questions, please refer to your regional medical director or to your regional office or uh, push down an email through uh, through his website or, excuse me, through his email or through the MEMS Ed website. I think this is a good opportunity to reflect on actually the process that the MDPB utilizes for reviewing and approving new devices. That's a, that's a and, good point, yeah. Um, typically the way this works is either uh, if you were to go to your service or your regional medical director with a device that um, that was needed on, on a truck for patient care, that you would actually approach them with a proposal for that device. At Like I said, either the service or the regional office. They would actually then review it, and if they felt that there was merit to this device, then they would actually bring that forward to the MDPV for review. Yeah, it would be it would be first vetted at the regional level, and what we ask is for uh, the a proposal and the the reasons for the proposal, the benefit that the mach- that the device provides, based uh, beyond our current practice, and then the uh, sort of the quote unquote cost from a financial, education, QI, training, sustainability standpoint. Is there a cost associated with this? And so those are all things that we ask to be vetted at the regional office, and that the regional uh, level considers the device and is the first uh, the first wave to consider these devices. Uh, and Don reminds me that this actually went through that same process in Southern Maine. I believe it was in 2010 or 2011. A uh, specific service brought that to Southern Maine EMS to review and um, uh, decided to hold off on taking it further and pursuing it and bringing it to the MDPB for the MDPB to review based on the current status of the literature at that point in time. Good. So just quick re, uh, recap. Yes. Quick, re- quick recap of, <laughs> of that is the MDPB looks at a few pieces of criteria. One, does it actually improve patient care? Two, is it cost effective? 
Well, no, we, 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 you know, we look at the impact on a lot of different levels, not just financial. And certainly we don't necessarily purport to uh, make decisions for how a service spends their money. But I, I think we want to know, when I say cost, I don't mean the financial cost, but more of the impact on a service from a medical direction, from a QI, from a, an education standpoint. All those things factor into the decision that the MDPB makes, not just the, the science. But the science is a big piece of it, and knowing that the... The device actually does what it's reported to do, that it does so safely, effectively, in a way that is beneficial to our patients, either from a time standpoint or other metric. Those are some of the most important things that we, we really look at and we think about when we're doing this. Good. I think that'll be good information for people. And if, again, if you have any other questions, this is a great opportunity to connect with your regional medical director to shepherd you through this process uh, and to kind of walk you through how to do this. Do we have any other frequently asked questions that we were going to do today, Matt? No, but there are a lot of things we're actually, we continue to go through that Don's gotten a lot of good questions from everyone who did the, um, the protocol update online, and we also uh, fielded some really good questions while we were doing the protocol updates in person, and we're still in the process of cataloging some of those questions, and we will promise to bring those uh, forward to you in the near future. And There have been a lot, and we're going to try our best to get to each of them in this format and respond to them all as we go on. A couple updates from ANMS. Obviously, uh, we've taken a little bit of a break from the podcast. It's been, I think, three months now. I think, I think you're right. I think it's been a few months since we did our some of our last protocol update podcasts on preparing everyone for the protocol update process. So uh, we, we apologize that we haven't been uh, present for the podcast. However, we've uh, been spending a lot of time trying to get the protocols rolled out around the state and make sure that we were accessible to people for questions readily and I'm, I managed to literally make it from one end of the state to the other in a couple week period it was, it was a good opportunity to um, visit some friends up there in the Aroostook area but uh, here we, we are back so we we appreciate your patience uh, getting back to you and um, so, so a couple other things are going on uh, today is December 2nd I had to think that one through um, as of today we know that the app is available, the protocol app is available for all of our Android users. Unfortunately, due to circumstances out of, out of our control with the Apple App Store, our iTunes uh, version app is currently on hold. Yeah, Jay had worked really diligent with the app developer and actually had had this in the uh, Apple App Store uh, well before the Thanksgiving holiday. He had given them the, the, the traditional turnaround time According to our app developers, close to seven days, and I guess Jay had wanted to give them much more than that and had given them more, more I think it was closer to two weeks. We were discussing this, and it was in, it was in the uh, uh, Apple's hands before the MDPB last month. Uh, unfortunately, it's been held up, and I, I don't know the exact reasons why it's being held up, but uh, we're working with our app developer and with Apple to... Uh, uh, get that through, and we apologize for any holdups in that. Maybe I'll call Tim Cook myself in the near future and see what we can do and see if we can shake a tree. All right. Uh, I wanted Matt to give a brief update on what's going on with the commu- Community Paramedicine Project. Matt sits on the subcommittee that's uh, been going through the process of reviewing the applications for that. Um, to give some background for people who may not know, when Maine EMS went to the legislature just over a year ago now... I believe you're right, yeah. They approved... 12 slots for pilot uh, projects to be approved. I believe that we have filled all 12 of those now, Matt. Is that correct? 
We have. So for those of you who are unaware, uh, the, the main EMS has been pretty involved in the in the community paramedicine programs in the state. There have been a lot of different ways that states have have opted to endorse community paramedicine. There have been a lot of grassroots efforts that have been really well received and very um, very um, uh, successful across the country. Um, we in Maine, under the guidance of uh, at the time Kevin um, McGinnis and uh, Jay Bradshaw, opted to actually be f fairly involved in the in the process, and it ends up being a, a unique model that that Maine has taken, and one that many other states have been fairly interested in following along, uh, because we have been so involved, and because we have so much interest, and we've been so uh, kind of uh, deeply rooted in the development of some of these programs. Other states have been fairly enviable of, about what we've done, but um, we began in, uh, we began reviewing applications approximately a year ago, and uh, just this fall, um, I believe it was in October, uh, uh, we're able to settle on our our twelfth and final program. And you know, I, I think what's really exciting about the community paramedicine programs we've seen develop are that they really epitomize what makes EMS so special in the state of Maine. And, and that really is the sense of volunteerism and the commitment to one's community. And it's really interesting and very, um, very, very uh, touching to see how each different EMS service that's approached us has brought unique but equally legitimate interest in their own community and solving uh, needs that they've recognized. And I think that's a testament to the uh, commitment that our providers and our system has to our citizens. And I, I'm excited to see how these play out and see how um, the benefit that these these programs bring to our, our different communities where they're, they're, they're playing out and rolling out. We've got a lot of different footprints and a lot of different uh, ways that uh, services are are uh, applying community paramedicine to their own uh, their own community. Many of them are very unique. Maine EMS wasn't necessarily interested in telling services what they should do. Uh, we were more interested in in counseling on how they could be successful in doing it, and and hopefully we'll start collecting some data in the near future and uh, seeing those successes played out. At present, most of the programs have begun enrolling patients, but we've not really been collecting data yet. In fact, some of the next steps really are to uh, create a comprehensive and coordinated data recording system so that we can start looking at the effects of, of these programs and hopefully start showing significant value uh, to what we do and, and uh, what we're doing. So more to come on that as time goes on. And for folks who are interested, some of the community, uh, the community paramedicine committees will be re-meeting to hear from the different programs and hear descriptions of their uh, programs and how those programs are doing. And if you watch the Maine EMS website and stay in touch with your uh, regional uh, offices, I'm sure you'll hear about those in the upcoming uh, months. I think it's also interesting. We actually had more applications than we did slots, but a couple of the services that had similar uh, programs developed actually agreed to work together so that they could be involved in the program and we could still actually maintain the 12 slots which is no that's a really good important very very important thing i think there was a, a there was an interest in, in in at the level of main ems and the level of the community the community paramedicine steering committee to be as inclusive as possible we did have boundaries that were very finite uh, based on the legislation's suggestion of uh, or the legislation the legis legislative move to endorse 12 community paramedicine programs only but what we were able to do um, was, you're, you're actually very right, there was 
there were two programs that were very similar and they were being anchored out of uh, two different healthcare clinics, but those healthcare clinics are operated by the same uh, healthcare system. And um, Steve Diaz had a very, uh, very good idea to, to approach those programs and see if they'd be willing to coordinate their efforts into one program, thus allowing the 13th uh, applicant to take a take a spot as well. And so that was a, that was a, a nice way to um, maintain the legislation's interest in only having 12 programs, but at the same time be able to support the interests at the EMS level in doing community paramedicine in, in all the spaces that we got applications from. And so far, uh, we haven't received any further applications. So, Final, final update that I want to put out there for anyone that attends the MDPB. In the month of February, the MDPB will actually not be holding their, their normal meeting. They're actually going to do um, the MDB, MDPB retreat so that they can all kind of get huddled together and kind of recharge their batteries and talk about different uh, responsibilities of medical director, directors. We've had a couple new medical directors um, come on over the last year and a half, two years, who have not actually had an opportunity to attend one of these. So at least personally, I think that there'll probably be a good opportunity for them to kind of sit down and get a little bit more um, background on the main EMS system and a little bit more guidance from some of the people who've been doing this a little bit longer about some good mechanisms that they can use to be engaged in their in their region. Yeah, you know, and I think the other the other idea behind the retreat is always to um, sort of to start thinking about our future direction and where we're going to be um, where we're going to be um, uh, moving in the future. And so it's an opportunity for us to uh, to do those things to orient newer folks who have come along to uh, start thinking as a group about our our future directions and go from there. So. Uh, yeah, for folks who typically come to that meeting, that's uh, the retreat is intended to be uh, primarily for the medical directors and the regional directors or other staff uh, from the regional director's office. We do have a few um, specific medical directors and folks who have been historically very much involved in Main EMS who uh, it's been nice to have their historical performance, uh, historical perspective, and they'll be attending as well. But for the most part, it will be a fairly um, a fairly closed group. So uh, please keep that on your calendar, that, and we'll be sending emails out in the future. We will not be having the regular scheduled MDPB meeting in lieu of that retreat. All right, so I think we're at the point of uh, diving into our education for this, uh, this particular podcast, which is going to be seizure management today. Matt's brought together a couple resources. We're going to recap the Rampart, which a lot of you have at this point probably heard about or at least I'd hope you've heard about it since it was part of the protocol update. Um, But we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that today and a couple other more recently published uh, papers. Yeah, so this continues a theme that you've you've seen since the beginning of these protocols. Don and I have tried very um, deliberately to address some of the upcoming changes in the protocols, and so far we've touched on many of those things, be it ALT or some of the changes at the level of the anaphylaxis protocol, we involved a lot of the other medical directors, actually all the other medical directors from the MDPB, to uh, kind of give some updates on their sections and what they, what they uh, sort of the direction that they went with the changes in their sections and why they did that. And um, we wanted to kind of circle back on seizures because this is a relatively big one, and we did address this certainly in the main EMS education around the protocols, both the didactic portion that you may have received in person through one of the train the trainers or something specific to your service, 
The other uh, place you've heard about this is certainly if you did the online portion. But we wanted to kind of give a little bit more insight into that and dive a little bit more and give you a little bit more of the, the wisdom behind those changes, so to speak. So I think the first thing that maybe is worthwhile is thinking about this from a global standpoint and why are we, we thinking about this. And I want to start off with some of the basics. And maybe, Don, you could uh, answer a question for me if you don't mind. I'm curious how you define status epilepticus. So I think when we talk about this in EMS, I think a, a great example. So backing up a little bit, um, we know that most seizures are self-limiting and will end in a relatively short period of time. And I think when it comes to EMS, I think one really easy way to tell is if you've been dispatched for a patient who's seizing and they're still seizing when you get there, they're in status. Ah, I like that a lot, actually. I think that's, that's a very nice way to look at this. I was hoping to trick you a little bit, and you didn't fall into my trick. I'm sorry. But I think, I think that's great of you. The reality is that there is disparate uh, definitions of status epilepticus in the literature right now. And depending on what you read and who you're reading from, you're going to run into different um, definitions. For instance, uh, the Neurocritical Care Society defines status epilepticus as greater than or equal to five minutes of either continuous clinical and or electrographical seizure activity or recurrent seizure activity without recovery, i.e. return to baseline between seizures. So it's greater than five minutes. Now, the National Institute of Health and Clinical Excellence talks about a seizure, one seizure prolonged and lasting more than five minutes or repeated more than three in an hour. And then the um, uh, International League Against Epilepsy, uh, which is a European consensus work group, defines status epilepticus as seizure activity lasting for more than 30 minutes. I think the reality is that we've, we've heard different uh, de- definitions, and there's a lot of definitions flying around out there, but there really isn't a consensus right now. What I think we're seeing amongst some of these major groups are that the time, uh, the time <laughs> definition should probably be limited. As you heard from the NICE or the National Institutes of Health Group and the Neurocritical Care Group, they are focusing more on a five-minute time frame. The International League Against Epilepsy references a 30-minute time frame, which is a little bit more of a historic time frame. And I think the reality is that status epilepticus should be defined as either convulsant or non-convulsant seizures or any um, uh, any um, recurrent activity without return to baseline for a period of five minutes or more. Don's exactly right that most seizures are actually very self-limited, and most seizures don't actually uh, proceed into status. But what we know about status is that status needs to be treated, and it needs to be treated immediately, and we need to do all our best to cease it immediately because as it goes on, it becomes increasingly refractive, meaning that it's harder and harder to break the longer that status goes on for. Now, to give you everyone a little bit of insight into um, the incidence and prevalence, we know that about 5% of adults uh, suffer one uh, episode of status epilepticus in their lifetime with epilepsy. The numbers are actually higher in children, and depending on the reference, they may be as high as either 10% or up to 25% of all children with epilepsy will have one episode of status epilepticus. So it's really in the young adults and children that we're, we're, we see a, ma- a majority of this, according to the, the published numbers. And the ranges might be between anywhere between 7 to 40 per 100,000 based on some of the, the, um, the, the published literature. So that gives an idea of how often this happens. I think that an, a great operational 
definition is the one that Don referenced, which is if you are dispatched for seizures and you arrive and the person's still seizing. That's a prob probably a good and fair definition or a way to think about status epilepticus. Another way I suppose to think about it is if they don't return to baseline but they seize in front of you again, that's another, another thing to consider uh, as well based especially on the neurocritical care uh, society guidelines. I think that's an important thing to also keep in mind because not all of these patients that we're going to run into are going to seize, be still seizing when we get there, that some of these patients may actually start seizing in our care. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's important to remember that just because they start seizing in front of you, maybe you were called for some other reason, this child happens, or this person happens to have epilepsy and starts seizing later in, in treatment, it's important to remember that there is a time frame. We don't want to just jump immediately to treating all of these patients with benzodiazepines. That's a good point. I mean, especially since the majority of these, so 95% of events in adults and up to 75, even 90% of events in children will be self-limited and will not fall into that category of status epilepticus. The majority of these folks we can actually hold on treating and, uh, and treat them only as they, they, uh, they enter in that sort of time frame that would suggest status epilepticus. We don't need to give everyone benzos the minute they seize. In fact, again, most of these folks will actually stop seizing on their own. Now, what's the downside of status epilepticus, and what do we know about this? Well, from a, a lot of different uh, uh, from a lot of different levels, it's a, it's very bad. I mean, th I think the most important thing to know is that uh, from a from a cerebral or from a brain standpoint, it, there's a significant hypoxic and metabolic injury that happens to the brain. These uh, patients end up having seizure-related cerebral injury. They can have a cerebral edema. They can have cerebral venous thromboses. They can have hemorrhage and infarction as the seizure progresses. And so this is, from a brain standpoint, a very dangerous place to be. And like I said earlier, we want to focus our treatment on stopping it, stopping it immediately, and stopping it as fast as possible once we become concerned for status. There are a lot of other problems that can happen, though, from a metabolic, cardiorespiratory, autonomic um, standpoint. Uh, all, many, many different things can happen to these patients, but the, some of the most feared complications certainly are what happens to their brain. There can be um, uh, aspiration, pneumonia. We can see folks develop uh, shock states, uh, cardiac arrest if they're hypoxic, et cetera, et cetera. But the, one of the major things we get worried about are the brain complications. And so that's one of the reasons we focus on such, uh, such rapid and, uh, and definitive therapy. Now, in the protocols and during the education around the protocols, you've noticed that we've changed the way we've done certain things, and there's been a very deliberate reason why we did that. Between uh, 2011 and 2013, an article was published in February in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Intramuscular Versus Intravenous Therapy for Prehospital Status Epilepticus. This was a trial done by the Neurological Emergencies Treatment Trials investigators and it was orchestrated out of uh, the University of Michigan uh, by a physician by the name of Robert Silbreet. I'm going to, I think I may have misspoken his name, but I'll spell it for everyone. It's S-I-L-B-E-R-G-L-E-I-T. And um, I actually had the opportunity to meet him at a conference he was speaking at for us. And I, I, he's a very, very interesting uh, person. I think he's pulled off a very, a very well uh, done study. Uh, you may have also heard us refer to this as the Rampart trial, and what that stands for is the Rapid Anticonvulsant Medication Prior to Arrival trial, meaning that it was a uh, getting anticonvulsants on board 
to patients by EMS prior to arrival at the hospital. And this is what's called a double-blinded randomized trial. And let me kind of explain that to folks who may not understand. Uh, what that means is that the people who were applying the therapy didn't quite know what therapy the person was getting because they were being randomized to receive one of two things. In this case, it was intramuscular uh, midazolam versus intravenous uh, lorazepam, so intramuscular versed versus intravenous um, Ativan. But the uh, every patient got two things. One was something through the vein and one was something through the muscle. They didn't know if what they were giving the patient through the muscle was a placebo or it was midazolam, and they didn't know if what they were giving through the vein was placebo or lorazepam. So uh, these are some of the, this, this was a very well done prospective trial, which enrolled um, a number of folks. It enrolled, um, let me pull up all the results stuff here, but they actually looked at about 2,145 patients to assess for eligibility uh, and ended up enrolling uh, about 120, sorry, 1,023 with uh, 893 assigned to one of two treatment groups. The two treatment groups in this case were uh, the IMidazolam group and the other treatment group was the IV lorazepam group. Now they ended up having some folks who were excluded, um, but they end up getting in, included in the numbers through something called an intention to treat uh, uh, analysis. Um, uh, that's uh, sort of a, a statistical thing. But, but the bottom line is in this trial, they tracked a lot of different outcomes and metrics. Certainly, first of all, they were interested to know that the populations were similar, were they the same age, were the same gender, were the same race, were the same uh, ethnic group? Did they get the? Did they have this? Did they have a similar history of epilepsy? What was their final diagnosis? What was the believed precipitant of this, et cetera, et cetera? And then they looked at a primary outcome. Their primary outcome was whether or not the se the seizure uh, stopped. So termination of seizure was the primary outcome. But the secondary outcomes they looked at were: did the patient require hospitalization? If they required hospitalization, did they require hospitalization in, a, in an ICU or did they require hospitalization on a floor? If they, uh, if they were treated with these, did they have any, outcome, any bad side effects? Did they require airway management, for instance? Uh, so they looked at endotracheal intubation within 30 minutes of arrival. They looked at episodes of hypotension. And then finally, they looked at um, recurrent seizures within 12 hours after ED arrival. And from many standpoints, it turns out that the uh, the midazolam group outperformed the lorazepam group. So from a seizure termination standpoint, they ended up having 74% uh, of the patients uh, stopped seizing with the IM midazolam, and only 64% stopped seizing with the IV lorazepam. Um, so they had a better outcomes there. They ended up having similarities in the number of folks who required intubation, um, uh, but they ended up having fewer hospitalizations in the midazolam group, fewer ICU admissions in that group, uh, and uh, they were fairly similar in the amount of recurrent seizures and hypotension that they saw. But I think what this study trial taught us uh, was a few things. Um, I think the, the take-home mes message here should be that the IM route of administration of benzodiazepines, in particular midazolam, is a very, very good route of applying medications. 
when you start to look into their numbers and you start to look at their study a little bit more, they ended up noticing that part of the delay in the in the effectiveness of, of lorazepam is the <coughs> need to establish an IV. And if you don't need to establish an IV and you can deliver the medicines IM, it ends up being a quicker onset. So I think what one of the major take-homes for us should be that when we when we come upon a patient seizing, if they do not have an IV established, the IM route for midazolam is a, a very um, a, a very laudable route and should probably be our primary route of applying benzodiazepines in our patients. So let me say that again. When you come across the scene of a patient seizing and that patient does not have an IV, we should use IM midazolam. Now, if the patient seizes in front of you and they already have an IV, it's certainly fair and probably faster to use the IV route because it's already there and it doesn't, the IV doesn't need to be established. But if there isn't an IV, proceed with IM midazolam. And that's a really, uh, this study tells us that if in the patient without an IV, the IM route ends up being faster. So I think that's one of the major things we took from this study. And when you reflect upon the protocols, you'll certainly notice that the IM route is mentioned there um, in the um, uh, critical care paramedic under number 13A. Uh, you'll also notice that we increased the dosages. We had purposely stepped back on the dosages in 2013, but based on Rampart, uh, this trial, as well as some other work we, we uh, did, we thought uh, it would be wise to go back to our previous dose of IV versus set at 5 milligrams, which I believe was our dosing starting in, uh, back to in 2008. Uh, but we also increased our IM dosing to 10 milligrams, which reflects uh, the dosing paradigm uh, uh, in this Rampart trial. Uh, that was the dose range they used for adults. And we've also um, made sure that the dose range um, is uh, dose equivalent for pediatrics on a MIG per kid basis as well. I think it's also really exciting to reflect on the fact that this was a, as you had said earlier, this was a really well done study, and this was an EMS study. I mean, this was this was truly done in the field. It was directly um, done for the purpose of seeing how this affected EMS and EMS care with these patients. And I, I think it's exciting. This is a this is an interesting time in EMS where we're seeing other EMS directed studies that are going on. We're seeing some surrounding stroke uh, out in LA County, the Fast Mag trial. Um, and I think there's we we know about some other studies that are actually in, in the initial stages right now. Matt's actually talked about some of the um, projects going on around pediatric evidence-based guidelines, and um, we should be hearing more about that in, in the near future as well. And hopefully, our states are actually going to be involved in that process of actually looking at some of these evidence-based guidelines and hopefully implementing them here in Maine and putting our data into that into that study to actually help determine if these guidelines make a difference in, in pediatric care. So I think this is a really exciting time for us. Yeah, it is. Um, so you referenced the FASTMAG trial, which is another one of the NET uh, uh, trials, the Neurologic Emergencies Treatment Trials, and it's really neat to see a lot of their attention being directed to EMS. I, I think it is a very exciting time for to be doing what we do, in part because we are being increasingly recognized as some of the major brokers when it comes to these time-critical illnesses. Certainly seizures is one of those. And um, you also referenced the pediatric evidence-based guidelines. Uh, within the next month, hopefully uh, by the time we're recording our next podcast, we will um, have some of the first NHTSA and FICOM-sponsored evidence-based guidelines published in pre-hospital emergency care. 
uh, and one of those will be a evidence-based guideline for the management of seizures in pediatrics. And one of uh, our friends here at Maine EMS, his name is Manish Shaw. He's a pediatric emergency physician out of uh, Baylor in Texas. Um, he is uh, the primary author on that, and he used this um, this paper that we referenced earlier to help craft that guideline. And what's really exciting is to see the talents of someone like Dr. Shaw or some of the other folks who are working on these um, evidence-based guidelines and then being able to take what they've learned and what they've been able to do and modify it to our nuances here is going to be really exciting. And as we move um, in the future, as we start looking at all these evidence-based guidelines and model-based guidelines coming uh, towards us, uh, I think it's going to be an exciting time for the MDPB to consider how those fit into our protocol set. And I'm excited to see how we reconcile those things. But the MDPB is been tracking and following these things all along, and it's going to be a really neat time coming up as we see more and more of this evidence-based stuff come towards us. Well, great. I think that wraps it up um, for this podcast, and please remember that we are always interested in hearing from you. We want to know uh, your um, your input. We'd like to hear your frequently asked questions, and we, again, uh, we will work to continue to compile the ones you've already sent us and get to those in the future. We also are interested in what your thoughts for future and upcoming topics are. are. We certainly have a few things that we're, we're uh, planning on, but we'd be willing to, um, uh, uh, certainly willing and interested in hearing from you about upcoming topics you'd like to hear about. Don, any final words? Actually, one, one thing I just want to touch on quickly is um, a lot of times we get questions from BLS providers when it comes to uh, seizure management about what's their role in in these patients, and one of the things that often comes up is airway management, managing the airway of these patients, and if that's something that they should be doing at that point. Yeah, and I think I think absolutely. It's certainly, especially basic techniques are are valuable in this patient population. I think another thing we'll see come in Dr. Shaw's work with uh, his collaborators, collaborators collaborators on the evidence-based pediatric seizure management guideline is the value and importance of checking finger sticks and identifying reversible causes of seizures in uh, in, in that population. Um, from a all-comers um, standpoint, it ends up that that ends up being a cause of seizures. I don't necessarily have a uh, I don't have a um, percentage of cause, but it ends up being one of the things that can cause seizures, especially in the younger population, is hypoglycemia. So certainly checking for that is another thing to do. Remember that there's there's a lot to do above and beyond the provision of medication too, and that's protecting the patient from uh, inadvertent self-harm due to convulsive activity, um, but also protecting the patient's dignity uh, in the face of convulsive activity activating ALS and getting the medication of the patient they need immediately. But those other things, protecting their dignity, protecting them from from inadvertent self-harm, checking for reversible causes, treating those reversible causes, and then basic management of the airway are all uh, applicable to the BLS provider. Great. Um, so as Matt said, thank you for listening. Um, this is going to actually be our most brief podcast we've done yet. Um, it'll make up for some of the other ones we've done. And please push us your comments. You can find my email address online on our website, uh, main.gov forward slash EMS. And, of course, there's always the ticket system and the support system for other questions that may come up. Thank you very much. Yeah, we thank you very much for listening, and thank you for all you do.